The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And my old protege, Wade Barrett, returns to Talk is Jericho with a new movie and a new Netflix show hitting screens this fall. Stu Bennett, that's his real name. He is in I Am Vengeance. It'll be in theaters this fall. He's also the UK host of the Netflix show Ultimate Beastmaster, which is premiering its third season this fall as well. CM Punk is the American host on Ultimate Beastmaster. Sounds pretty heavy metal. Both will be released in September on Netflix. And remember, Wade Barrett did all of his own stunts for I Am Vengeance, and you'll hear what that was like and some of the stuff he had to do. He's also talking about the British wrestling scene, how much has grown and changed the last few years. What it's been like uh, to be a part of that scene, that thriving scene, since leaving the WWE of his own volition. Speaking of WWE, Wade's talking about his decision to leave WWE, why, when, and where it happened. He's got some stories about his time in the League of Nations and what he thought about that gimmick in general. Kind of red reels, right? And you guys know that Wade was my NXT protege, as I said earlier. He's sharing what really happened from his perspective that night on TV when I handed him the mic to introduce me. It's a great story. Wade Barrett returning to talk as Jericho and Fozzie returning to the road this summer. The Judas Rising tour continues in July, July 12th in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, 13th at the Kadat Wisconsin Rock Fest, 14th in Peoria, July 15th in Belvedere. Then we head overseas to uh, to Europe. We're doing Pheasant Festival in Hungary on the 26th, Prague on the 27th, Seabron, Germany on the 28th, Zurich, Switzerland on the 29th, Rock Planet in uh, Pinarella de Serbia, Italy. Tons of other gigs going on. Go to FozzyRock.com for all information and VIP info. And, of course, August 24th in Atlanta, Georgia, we return uh, to the United States with Adelita's Way and Stone Broken and the Stir. Go check out all the gigs on the Judas Rising Tour at FozzyRock.com with all VIP info. You don't want to miss this. We do one of the best VIPs in the business. We'll play a mini concert for you. You're going to have a great, great time. FozzyRock.com. Go check out see Fozzy this summer. And then go see Wade Barrett in theaters and on Netflix in September. But first, check him out right here on Talk is Jericho. Wade Barrett's Vengeance right here. Let's get started now. On the line, my former protege, who's now a huge movie star, man, Stu Bennett. Huge, huge, huge. movie star. Hey, Chris, how are you, mate? Good, man. I was just thinking about your uh, one of my favorite voices. 
Like you get <laughs> seriously, you got you got a voice, you got a face for radio and a voice to match for sure. <laughs> I'll take I'll take the second half of the uh, the compliment anyway. <laughs> How's life with you? Oh, it's good, man. It's it's it's. I'm glad that uh, you reached out to talk today. It's been a long time, and there's so much to to discuss. And um, I, I love the fact that now you are living in New York, or you live in London, or you live both places. No, I live in Manhattan, so I moved here about six months ago. I was living in Tampa, Florida, not right. far from you, for like nine and a half years. Um, and then once I kind of wrapped up with WWE and had a lot more downtime, I, I wanted to move somewhere with a bit more life. I mean, Tampa's great to go and kind of chill out, but to be there, you know, 365 right. days a year, it gets a little boring after a while, as beautiful as the place is. Um, so my girlfriend was living in Manhattan, so I've basically sold the house down in Tampa and moved up here. And uh, Yeah, life's slightly different in Manhattan. Tell, tell us the differences. Uh, well, I mean, the weather is great. I, I'm not a big fan of super hot weather, so Tampa was was always obviously sweltering hot, so up here it's you actually get seasons, which is great, and uh, I've been enjoying the snow and the cold, the rain and the cloud as an Englishman. is really <laughs> close to my heart. Right. Uh, and then on top of that, I mean, you've just got so much life. Like, um, I live pretty near to the the central park um the upper west side so i can just like walk out my front door and you're all like the mm-hmm. you know bars and restaurants and all that stuff everywhere and on top of that i've got an agent working in the the kind of movie industry who's in new york so i can go to auditions and things like that a lot easier here than when i was down in tampa which was a, a real pain cause no real kind of movie stuff in in the Tampa area. It's one of those things too, like when you go to New York, especially when you get to Manhattan. Like I always stay at. There's a really cool place uh, uh, downtown. I can't remember what it's called right now, but um, it's like a real uh, kind of a gangster hotel, the Royalton. It, it, you go into like the bar area. It's very dark. You walk out in the street. There's taxis. There's there's stuff going on. You take two two uh, walk down to three places here. There's a bar. You walk down three places over there. There's a place to eat. I mean, there's always so much action going on in New York City. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to get bored here. There's a saying in the UK that if you're bored of London, you're bored of life. Uh, and I think the same probably applies to New York City, too. It's just everywhere you go, there's something different. There's a completely new bar opening down the road or a new restaurant or, oh, cool, look at this cocktail place or whatever it is. And right. the park, and There's always something to do, which is pretty awesome. And I don't think I'll live here forever. I don't think it's anything like that. But I heard something in a song once that you should spend at least one year of your life living in New York, but leave before the place makes you hard. And <laughs> wow. One year of your life living in Southern California, but leave before the place makes you soft. So wow. I'm, I'm kind of getting the New York one out of the way, and who knows next, it might be L.A. or something. What song was that? Um, you know, it was um, it was something about it's safe to wear sunscreen. It was a big song in the U.K. like 20 years ago or something like that. It's a, a real unique song, but um, was I can't it, remember. Baz Luhrmann, it might have been. What, Everybody what, wears sunscreen or something like that. It's kind of like spoken over the top of music. It's not really singing. It's the guy speaking and narrating over the top. But I think, it's, yeah, I think, I think it's by S Club. I think S Club Seven was that. It? That was one of my favorites. Actually, I am a bit of an S Club Seven fan. So I know you're trying to. I know you're trying to embarrass me there, but I'm quite open about my love of S Club Seven and the Spice Girls. And I have no shame when it comes to that. You mentioned about uh, getting bored. And let's just jump right in. You know, you left the WWE. Was it two years ago? I yeah, think probably about about eight, uh, yeah eighteen months, two years ago, something like that. Yeah, and I'm not sure we've ever really discussed it. And and, and what was kind of the idea behind that of of taking? Because I did the same thing just to predicate this, so you don't have to 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 feel 
strange talking about it. In 2005, I got so burned out on the business, I just didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And I left for basically two and a half years and didn't even really watch wrestling or even think about it. So I understand where you're coming from if that's the case. But what was your reasoning for kind of walking away? Because you, you did walk away. It wasn't one of those uh, future endeavors, good luck, that sort of a thing. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I've read your books, Chris, so I, I was fully aware of, of that. And honestly, when I was going through that myself, not that I really spoke to anyone about it, I, I actually had in my head that you'd done this before. Oh, okay, and, yeah. You know, from reading your books, and it was like, man, I feel the same way as the way Chris clearly felt in that book, and a bunch of other people have felt the same way too. But, I mean, I was kind of burned out on the road, as you said. I mean, when you start on the road, everything's new, everything's fresh, and it's so cool, and you don't care that you're away from home for... 275 nights a year and you're constantly exhausted and beat up and you know and even if you get bad bucking or something like that it's all fine because you're living this amazing experience but after i'd been up there several years i kind of got to the point where even the little things were irritating me and you know the travel was really killing me and you know i'd get to the arena and i'd be you know, it seems, it seems to be that every Raw and every SmackDown, every Monday and Tuesday, I get to the arena and I'd be so disappointed when the script for the show came out. And mm-hmm. every week it was just something that, man, I don't want to do this. And, you know, I kind of plead my case with people in the creative team or in management about doing something different or tweaking this this way. Hey, how about moving this story this way? And it just seemed that whatever I was doing, I was just banging my head against the brick wall. And it, it got to the point where it felt like Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. And... My contract was running up, and I'd signed like a pretty long contract after I did the Nexus deal and stuff like that. They got me on a pretty long contract there, and that was just coming to a head. So they'd approached me a couple of times about re-signing and extending and, and coming up with a new deal and stuff like that, and it hadn't even got to the point of negotiation. I just explained to them, I need to get out of here. This is, this is just killing me, and um, you know I need to go do something else for a while and get away from pro wrestling, which is essentially what I did. It wasn't some... Mm-hmm. master plan to go and do anything else. It wasn't like I had some great business I was moving on to. I just knew whatever I was doing, I needed to get away from WWE, at least for a while. So that's how it kind of came to a head. And there was some other things. It wasn't just um, in terms of the creative that I, wasn't, uh, that I wasn't happy with. There was some stuff behind the scenes I'd fallen out with a couple of people in. Kind of the talent relations and management department. I'm not going to go into mm-hmm. exactly what that was about, but it was just, okay, This is this is all coming together now to show that with my contract coming up, I need to just get away. And, and that's really how it kind of, uh, kind of how it all shook out. Was it, uh, was it hard at first? Cause obviously you've been on the job for obviously longer than WWE times, probably 10, 15 years at that point. Sure. I mean, in terms of including developmental, I was, I was pretty much coming to close to 10 years at that point. So on wow. the main roster, maybe six and a half plus years. Um, and as you know, like it's, it's not the kind of job when you're working there full time anyway, it's not the kind of job that you can kind of, you know, okay, I'll just, you know, go and take a little break and go take a vacation or, you know, even when you're off, you you get your one, one or two nights at home. But when you get home, it's immediately, okay, wash the clothes, get my bills paid, sleep, try and catch up some sleep, get up the next day. They want me to do some phone interviews, promoting the next week's shows. Then you're immediately back to the airport and on the road again. So it is literally nonstop, all encompassing, like taking over your life. So to go from that to suddenly just kind of being at my house all day and having nothing to do was the strangest thing I've ever done. Right. It's, it, I, I don't like it to, you know, like a death or something like that. You, you almost mourn this mm. change in your life at first. And it probably took me at least kind of six months to get out of my system and 
I remember the weirdest thing was seeing things like, you know, SummerSlam is on and people are tweeting me and, and saying, hey, are you going to appear at SummerSlam? Are you going to come back? So I'm like, it's just look, so weird to think, oh, wow, I'm not there. This is my <laughs> yeah. thing for like seven years or whatever. And I'd be out doing this. And every Monday it'd be 8 p.m. And I'd be thinking, wow, I should be getting ready for Raw now. And, and you know, I'm kind of mm-hmm. at home or whatever, out doing other things or, or whatever it would be. So it's the weirdest thing to get it out of your system at first. And it definitely took a good six months for me to kind of be normalized again and, and start living a regular life. You know, I, I know one of the things when I left too, like the burnout and all that sort of stuff, and, and not even frustration, just kind of like, you know, am I ever going to get ahead of where I am right now? And I was thinking, yeah. should I just get the hell out of here and just and just take myself out of the equation? Because and, and this is not, to, you know, I, I don't want to delve into this where it's a bad thing, but when I look at, at you coming into the system back in the NXT, I mean, it's a no-brainer. You're six foot, whatever, eight, six, whatever, Great, great body, handsome guy, hard-looking, good promo, if not great promo at times. What do you think, you mentioned falling out, you don't need to talk about any of that, but what do you think it was that wasn't clicking with the powers that be to give you that that moment uh, to be a top, top, top guy? Yeah, I felt a lot of the times, especially when I, you know, around about the Nexus time, certainly for the next couple of years, I always felt I was kind of there or thereabouts as a guy they wanted to do something yeah, with. Yeah, agreed. But I, I always felt I was in an unfortunate position where there are limited spots to be in those top roles. So you have your, your regular guys who are always going to be there. You've got your, you know, John Cena and Randy Orton, Chris Jericho and guys like that who are already filling up a lot of those top spots. And then you had the younger guys coming through, but you had... You know, Sheamus, who they were really pushing hard at that point. Del Rio, who'd come in as a heel. Miz. And these were the guys that, okay, if if those guys or one of those guys weren't there, perhaps I would be the guy that they could slot up there. But with the fact that they were going with new guys like Del Rio and Miz in the top heel spots at that point, it really left no place for me to go. So I felt like at that point, I was kind of one of the next in line, certainly. And they were keeping me on the back burner with intercontinental titles and things like that but then when that didn't pan out all the guys that they were going with were working out so well i was kind of in this holding pattern for a long time which felt like probably up until about 2014 i was in that kind of holding pattern Mm -hmm. and really the as you mentioned you know the with you you felt you weren't going to get any higher or it didn't look like you were going to get any higher than you previously been that's how i got in you know 2015 2016 i felt like not only you know, despite working harder and attempting to improve my promo, improve my character, or improve my physique, whatever I can do to try and get up a little higher, um, it felt like not only was I not getting higher, I was actually going backwards in terms of my position on the card to the point where for a large period of 2015 and 2016, I was really used as what I felt was an enhancement guy. And yeah. I was being sent out in the, the, you know, almost the meaningless segments, the filler segments of the show, like segment nine and yeah, and you know segment four where you know the, if people understand how the the TV stuff works, the crossover segments are the most important ones, are the opening and the close and stuff like that. So I felt like I was being shoved out in those segments for like to go out and just lose in two or three minutes with no storyline, no build up or anything like that. So that felt in terms of my position on the hierarchy that I dropped lower than ever, and and that was certainly one of the the things that that I I'd really got frustrated with. That's such a great point too, like. Um... And I think it's something that, that people might be interested in. When you're talking about the segments on the show, you're talking about Raw. Yeah. And there's 16 segments, I believe, every show. Obviously, one and two, super important. 15, 16, super important. And then whatever the cross, excuse me, the crossover hours are. But you do yeah. get, you mentioned four, you mentioned nine. Uh, segment 14 
if you're yeah. ever in those segments, it's not a good thing because they're basically, like you said, they are the epitome of the filler segments for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You would never see a John Cena or a Brock Lesnar or someone of that ilk yeah. who they're doing something with. You, they would never be in those spots because those are really the the kind of death segments where okay, it's a roller coaster ride of a show, and we'll we'll hit peaks in segment six, which is a crossover, and segment eleven, which is a crossover. Yeah. And obviously, the big close of the show and the opening. And everything kind of in between is like, okay, we have this time, we have to fill it, and who can we stick out there? Okay, have have uh, a baby face go over heel there. Who have we got that's not working? Okay, have our truth just be Barrett there. Cool, that'll fill up five minutes or whatever it is. So, like, that that kind of when you find yourself in routinely put in those spots, which for me, genuinely, it felt like I'd, I'd been in those spots for a year plus with no sign, with no light at the end of the tunnel. That was... You know, kind of, when I, when I talk about having that dread of waking up on a Monday yeah. and a Tuesday going to Raw and SmackDown, it's because I knew that I was going to get those. and It wasn't even the case of me having to text the writers, hey, what have I got today? It was, I already know what I've got. And, like, having that hanging over you was kind of killing me. And I will contrast that and say that the the live event shows, the Friday, yeah. Saturday, Sunday shows, which aren't televised, and the tours, I was having a bunch of fun on them, and I was really enjoying that. It was just having this thing hanging over me that career-wise... I'm, I'm heading downwards here, and that's never where I want it to be. And uh, and funnily enough, actually, I'll bring this up with you now. I never mentioned this to you at the time, but my final day. So we did WrestleMania that year, 2015, in, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. We did Raw the next day at the, the arena in Dallas, and then pretty much I got kicked out of the League of Nations that night. And I knew storyline-wise, okay, I'm pretty much done here, and we're just going to kind of run out the next few weeks of my contract or whatever it was. And so I got kicked out of the, the League of Nations. Storyline-wise, I'm certainly finished there. The next day, we had a show, the SmackDown show in Houston. And that Houston building, you go down and you go in the, the door and you go down, like drive down that giant ramp. Right. Well, I went into the building that day and I knew I was kind of tying up loose ends at that point. And there was one big issue that I'd kind of been banging heads with talent relations about for a long time. And it kind of came to a head there that day. So we get there at two o'clock or whatever it is. And um, around about three or four o'clock, I end up having this big kind of blow up with talent relations there which looking back it was all very silly but we have this blow up i get very angry they get very angry i'm not on the show anyway so at that point i'm like you know what i'm just gonna grab my bags and go home i'm done so this is basically me leaving wwe so it was a pretty kind of stressful moment obviously i was angry i was mad this that and the other went and grabbed my bags i went straight to my car slammed my bags in the car, you know, started the engine up and started driving up that ramp. But in my head, I'm still angry about this blow-up we just had. And all I'm thinking in my head is, like, wow, that's me done with WWE. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. This is it here today. And it was, like, pretty crazy considering I'd lived, you know, the majority yeah. of my life thinking about working there and, and how great it was and stuff. So as I'm heading up the ramp, I just see the light at the top of the tunnel of just the outside. And I'm thinking, as soon as I go there, I mean, it's freedom. And there's, like, you know, a bunch of fans <laughs> stood at the top. I get to the top of the ramp, and just as I'm about to burst out into freedom and the light and this kind of whole new world that might be ahead of me, a car pulls across the front of me and stops me out of tracks. I'm like, who, who the f*** is this? And I look up, and it's you. And you're turning up at the building at like four, and I've got a face like thunder. And I just look at you, we lock eyes, you flip me the bird, and you just kept driving down the tunnel. 
And then I'm kind of, and then I put my foot down and just, you know, head to the airport. Like, I, don't, I don't know what reaction I gave you. I think I was kind of dumbstruck at the time, but like, I was fine. That was my big goodbye to WWE. <laughs> getting flipped off by the guy who brought me in, storyline wise, and uh, sent me off into the sunset. So, yeah, that was, looking back, that always makes me laugh. That's a great story, man. <laughs> just a, a couple last things about WWE, and I want to talk about all the other stuff you're going on. I found two things about what was going on with you in that kind of. 15-16 period. One, you mentioned the League of Nations, and I've never seen four world champion candidates as completely just ignored, like thrown together <laughs> and doing nothing. I was like, these guys, like, and nothing against anybody. You know, everybody that works, I have respect for. But this is like, the, they're treating them like they're the social outcasts. Or, you know, it's like, look at these guys. Look at all four of them. They could kill anybody, and you're going out there getting run off by, you know, the, the spirit squad or whatever the hell was going on at the time. Uh-huh. How, how was that for you guys? Like, like, how, did it, how did it get to that point with all four of you? Seamus, Del Rio, uh, Barrett, and, and Roos? Yeah, I, I, you know what? They were doing something with Seamus at that point. I think he'd had the money in the bank briefcase, and he was pretty cold coming into where he needed to, to get to the point where he's cashing it in because kind of time was running out, I think. So I think the theory was let's put some steam behind Seamus by having this legit faction of guys around him who make him a more credible threat than he was perhaps seen as at the time because, like I said, he hadn't been doing too much on the show, and he didn't have a ton of steam coming into a cash-in or anything like that. So. Right. They put us around him, I think, to help him and, and build a bit of credibility behind him before he had this feud with Roman, and then ultimately to make you know Roman look like he's conquering these four badasses or whatever it is. Um, but I agree. I mean, in terms of the, the quality of writing, you're, you're not really much of a threat just because your four guys stood there and you're getting your asses kicked every week, which is exactly what happened. I think at one point we had a four-on-one match with Roman, and he ended up going over in the match somehow, and we had you know the Keystone Cops with guys running into each other and stuff. Which, yeah. on paper, wow, Roman Roman's going to look like a real ass kicker if he can take out these four guys. But in reality, it's just so ridiculous. It doesn't help him at all. And um, sometimes that really strong baby face booking can be counterproductive. And I remember I had something very similar a couple of times when I was the Intercontinental Champion. I remember they had Ezekiel Jackson who they wanted to kind of break out and move him up the card and, and have him be a big star. But their way of doing that when he, when we kind of broke up the core faction that we're in was just to have him just beat the shit out of me every single week. Well, I got nothing on him up until the point where two months later, he wins the Intercontinental Championship off me, which, right. you know, for him, it, nobody cared. I mean, it was the point where I'd, I'd had my ass kicked so much that nobody cared by the end when he was the champ, because it was, it was like, he wasn't even conquering a threat. And I had something similar with Dean Ambrose too, when I worked the program with him and I felt that like he got nothing out of that, despite the fact he was kicking my ass every week. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end he didn't get anything because he wasn't overcoming a threat or anything like that. It was almost obvious from the beginning that he was in such a league higher than me. And I, I feel that Roman probably didn't get much out of the league of nations either, just because we were put so weakly that when he does conquer us, it's, it's almost like meaningless. Do you remember when uh, I was the referee and I had to throw all you guys out of the ring? Oh, man, I, you know what? That period, really, I've, <laughs> I've blocked a lot of it out. Honestly, I, I genuinely don't even remember. Dude, you got, you got to like, watch it. It's, it's online. So, so I was the special guest referee, and it was uh, Roman versus Rusev. And all you guys were jumping up on the apron side, and I had to kick you all out. 
And I guarantee that Vince must have just watched uh, 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 Naked Gun (laughs) and the guy's the umpire and he's kicking people and doing cartwheels and stuff. (laughs) I do remember Remember that. (laughs) Yes, I do. Vince wants you to do cartwheels. I'm like, okay. I didn't even ask questions. You know, it's one of those ones you're like, all right, sure. Dude, it was, if you watch that scene, because I do a a few spoken word shows, I know you've done them too, and I have a little bit of an intro, and I have Uh that clip on there, and it's so fucking hilarious. It's like you guys just (laughs) super overreacting, and me just over the top is actually probably the best thing that the League of Nations did. Yeah, now you've mentioned that, I do remember that. Yeah, Yeah, honestly, that final, especially that final six months, I was mentally so checked out there that, like, yeah, a lot of it just bypassed me. And whereas in the past, I would get, you know, I turn up and I try and change things in the booking or try and make suggestions to make things better or, hey, how can I improve this and make at least a little something out of it? By that point, they'd come out and give me the, the show my final six months. I was like, yeah, cool. I'll do it. No problem. And that was just... They had broken you I at know, that point. I know. I'm, I'll do what you need me to do, but... You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fight this anymore. This is what you want. This is what you're gonna get. And you know, I've never had less kind of arguments or yeah. um, or you know, tongue lashings or anything like that from from anyone in management or anything during that period because I just went with the flow and gave them exactly what they want. And, but that's um, that's when you know that that you're that you don't don't need to be there anymore because when you start losing your fire to. It's not necessarily to rebel, but just to make things better and make things the best they can possibly can. And when you just don't care anymore, that's when it's time to move on. Oh, 100%. And I'd I'd already got to the point where I knew I was moving on. And, you know, uh, the thought of signing the new three-year deal that they'd had for me at that point when I felt that way, that nothing good would have come out of that. A, I was miserable, you know, being around wrestling and being on the road and stuff like that. And B, for me to not have the the fight left in me to even try and make the improvements that I could try and make or, or try and make suggestions that told me that, look, if I do resign here and, and take whatever money they're offering me financially, it might make sense. But in terms of what, what I'm going to be paying out there, it is going to be bad and like things are not going to improve there at all. So that, that for me was like, yeah, no matter what happens from here, I have to leave and, you know, regroup and we'll see where, where, where the future takes me. So you do that. And then um, I know you had done some acting. You did. You had done a, a WWE film at that point. One film or two for WWE? I'd done two. So the first one I did, it was called Dead Man Down. That was in 2012 with Colin Farrell and Terrence Howard. And uh, it was a really good experience. But in terms of my role in the film, it was a very small role. I was kind of a background character, just a bodyguard to Terrence Howard. So I didn't really have too much to do in it. But it was just a great experience, like seeing how it all worked and and seeing, you know, being involved in my first movie and stuff like that. And then I had another one in 20, I think it was 2014. It was called uh, Eliminators, and um, they filmed it over in the UK. Again, another WWE Studios one. I played the lead villain in that, so I had a lot more on my shoulders and, you know, a lot more dialogue and fight scenes and stuff like that. And it was just a, a really cool experience. And um, it really gave me a bit of a, a passion to, to maybe go and do more of that if I, if I could find some opportunities in that world. Because I mean, let's like I said, you have a great presence on screen, um, and I always felt that you were a lot like me as far as and and the best guys are. When we go out on TV, you're playing the character. There there is no Wade Barrett behind the scenes. That's more of a Stu Bennett. When you go in front of the camera, there is a character that you played. So you obviously had a an affinity for acting, and it's something that you decided you wanted to kind of continue on full time. Um, I don't know about full time. It was. It, it wasn't like. Okay, so I think Batista, for example, he left WWE and he had this 
plan to to get into Hollywood and this that. Either. I didn't have any plan when I left. It was just I knew okay, I, gotcha. I had to be away from there. And then when I left, that actually when I when I shot the movie in. 2014, the Eliminators film over in the UK, I bumped into somebody who works for a company called Evolutionary Films. And kind of after I'd left WWE, uh, they got in touch with me and, and started suggesting a movie that they'd had uh, that they'd written. They thought I'd be perfect for the lead role in it. So they sent me a script from there. And this, this is called Vengeance. So um, that was kind of how I transitioned from WWE into that. So I was still, when I left WWE, I was, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to Japan? You know, I had some very preliminary chats with people in Japan, D- TNA got in touch with me and I was still like, you know, I need a break, whatever I do, I need to, a little break from wrestling. But right. then this film stuff came up and I was like, you know what? I've loved doing film in the past. Let's, let's explore this and see where that goes. So how was it? How did you get the gig for vengeance? Cause I know it's, it's a pretty big film and, and I was looking kind of, uh, I hate to use the word research, but looking into it a bit and you're basically the lead guy. So you're, you're on the poster and, and that, all that sort of thing. So, how did uh, a basically an unknown guy get the lead in in a movie on your second or third try? Yeah, so the role I did with WWE, the Eliminators film, um, that was a, a pretty big role, even though it wasn't lead, it was lead villain. So I um, I think the people from Evolutionary Films had seen that. They also had a couple of people who they are in very close contact with who were actually working on Eliminators, and I think they'd gone to them and, you know, sound them out about me, what's his acting like, you know, right. what, what is he professional, that kind of thing, because you never know. But the the London film scene is very tight-knit, so everybody knows everybody else's business and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of wor- partly word of mouth, and then I think they saw some stuff I did with the Eliminators film and, and basically offered me the role off the back of that. And um, and obviously I was thrilled when it came in. I read the script. We, we kind of went back and forth a little bit. I ended up working with a agent in London who kind of negotiated the deal and stuff. And um, yeah, next thing you know, I was flying over probably five months after I'd left WWE. I was flying over to London to shoot Vengeance with them. So it kind of tied in perfectly with, with me leaving WWE and, and this thing coming up shortly afterwards. It gave me a little break and then, okay, here we are. Let's get back to rolling with, with something cool, which is Vengeance. So how did you enjoy the the transition from, you know, the one thing that, that I love about wrestling and about playing music is the instant uh, reaction, instant gratification from the crowd and from the fans of knowing, okay, they like that, they didn't like that. How was it for you when you get start to film and it's a very more of a tedious type of a, of a situation? Well, 100%. I mean, the thing we all thrive on in WWE certainly is, okay, here's your promo. In 15 minutes' time, you need to have learned this because you'll be out in the ring in front of millions of people around the world live, so don't screw it up. And, like, I've had that several times, being given giant yeah. promos at the last minute and tweets, and you obviously have too. Um, so that kind of pressure is something we thrive on. And as you say, the, the human reaction and stuff, but going to a film set where it's very, it can be very sterile, there's no atmosphere, it's completely quiet while we're shooting the scene, and it's almost like the pressure was, was kind of off in a way, because I knew that if I screwed something up, you know what, we're going to shoot this same scene 15 times right. from a bunch of different angles anyway, so you can't really screw it up, even though you're, you're constantly tweaking and say, I could have done that better, I could have hit that line better, and stuff like that, so it was a learning experience as much as anything, but I mean, that, that release of pressure is something definitely it took me a little while to get used to just because you can't really screw it up okay you can make it better and better and better but if you do get it wrong you know what we're going to reshoot so uh so yeah it's it's definitely an interesting change of pace for me i always find too like when you're when you're filming 
it's not just the fact, okay, if I make a mistake, we can film again. The, the thing that I don't like as much about it, and that's why I do most of my promos live in the WWE as well, is if I really nail it and then they want to do it again and yeah, let's do it from this angle. That always happens. It's it hard, matter, right? It doesn't matter how good your first one is, we're going to do it 15 times. Yeah. So yeah it's the, the, there is an element of that. At first, it's a great thing, and then suddenly you'll nail one and you'll think, let's move on. Oh, um, I got a little bit. I got a little bit of speck of light on the on the lens at like, one point. Oh. We reached so like all those little things like that. Like, oh, so it can, yeah. It's, there's there's a good and bad to it. You're absolutely right on that one. And uh, I don't know, if I'm honest, nine times out of ten, it's it's me screwing it up, not everyone else. So don't, don't let me put this on the <laughs> cameraman and people like that. Um, but yeah, it can be it can be irritating sometimes when you, especially at the end of a long day, where you keep having to do the same scene over and over again because. You know, an aircraft went overhead yeah. and it messed up the sound. That's one problem we had because <laughs> we, were, we were pretty near to, um, I think we are near to Luton Airport in north of London when we were shooting a lot of it. So there's, there's always little things that can go wrong that if you're live, nobody even cares about and nobody notices. But it becomes a perfectionist thing once you once you do get the opportunity to shoot it a bunch of times. What about uh, like stunts and things along those lines? Did you do your own or did you have somebody do them? Yeah, I mean, I had to do my own. I think that's one of the reasons they got a, uh, an ex-wrestling guy that could save a bit of money on the stunts. Because um, it's funny, I did the the first film I did with, sorry, the second film, the one with uh, WWE Studios Eliminators. I did it with a guy called Scott Adkins, who's a, a pretty big martial arts type actor in the UK. He's been in quite a few decent-sized movies, and he's got a big reputation out there. Um, but I go in and um, we're, we're kind of talking about our fight scenes. We have a bunch of fight scenes and action shots and stuff like that. And I'm beating him up and he's beating me up. And then I meet a bunch of guys on set and they're, oh, this is Scott's um, stunt guy. So every time I'm picking him up and throwing him around, <laughs> you know, it's me picking up the stunt guy and we'll shoot it from a certain angle. And then when it comes to me getting, you know, my ass kicked and thrown around, we don't have a stunt guy. Well, why not? I mean, well, you're a wrestler. You can do this, right? Uh, well, yeah, can't I get a stunt guy? And then they were like, oh, yeah, we just couldn't find anyone your size. Like, oh, is that how it works? That's great. Right. It's, it's the same in Benz. And so, like, if you're a wrestler going into acting, you're going to be doing your own stunts, and that's the rule, which I don't mind. It's, uh, you know, it's a bit of fun. And um, you're not falling off 20-foot ladders, doing yeah. duplexes and stuff like that. I think they, they kind of rein in the stunts a little bit, and they go through everything 20 times, and you make sure it's perfect. If anything's not quite right, you can, you know, kind of stop it halfway through. It's not like... I mean, I, I did a spot with Cody at WrestleMania once where I had to suplex him off a giant ladder over the top and, and stuff like that, which is just terrifying, right. knowing as you're climbing up there, okay, we can't climb back down and discuss a different spot. We're live <laughs> in front of you know, 80,000 people in the crowd and millions at home, and Vince is on the... The, the headsets watching this now. We have to do this. So it's kind of terrifying too, but it's a little easier on film. I, I remember uh, I did a thing for Comedy Central. It was like a cop uh, comedy, but like one of the things was we were, we were just sitting in a car. It was called Nothing to Report. And you're just sitting there in the front seat. And then like I had to, I had to uh, get out of the front window because the door was jammed. And so like, okay, so you just, you crawl out of the driver's uh, window and we've got this big uh, gym mat, like about four feet. So make sure, like, do you need help? I'm like, like what? Like you don't need to trust me. Like it's a two foot drop. I think I'll be okay onto the grass. It's like, are you sure? Like, yeah, I'm sure. Do you not know what we do? But that's how Hollywood is. They're super, super careful with that. Except for when it was with us. Oh, yeah. One, at one point, I had to take a knee in um, in Vengeance, and um, all I had to do was take a knee and, and talk to someone while I'm on a knee. And like people are rushing out before you. Here's a knee pad for your knee. Like put the knee pad on. Like, oh, I'll be all right. It's just you know I'm kneeling down. That's all I'm doing. Are you planning to stamp on me or something? No, no. <laughs> right. no, I'm good. I don't need the knee back. Like, yeah, they've got everything covered. 
like that. Was there any stunts that you had to do that were a little bit intricate? Not really. I mean, the, probably the hardest thing, I think, is because obviously wrestling, like, we might have, we might know, okay, there's going to be a match, and at some point, Chris, like, I'll be beating you down, I'll yell at the referee, turn away, just light me up, and, and, you know, punch me ten times, whatever it is, there yeah. might be a spot like that, and you're actually punching me. Um, and you're connecting because we've got, you know, 360-degree audience and cameras right in our faces. You are actually, you're not trying to break my nose. It's already yeah. broken enough, but, you know, you're not trying to, <laughs> you know, really beat me up, but you are punching me. That's how pro wrestling works. But when you get on film set, there's, you know, they don't connect, and it's shot at certain angles and stuff like that. So the hardest thing I found was throwing punches and throwing kicks and um, and doing stuff where, as a pro wrestler of 12, 13 years or whatever it had been at that point, um, I'm used to actually hitting people. So actually angling stuff where I'm not punching them and making it still look real. So it's a whole new technical side of what you're doing in terms of the fight scenes to make them look right. So it's, it's a bit of a weird thing to get used to. So that's what I found hardest in terms of throwing myself against walls and through tables and stuff like that. That's just the easy stuff. I can do that without thinking because as can any wrestler. But um, yeah, definitely the fight scenes are, are not, you know, tweaking the way you throw a punch and a kick and stuff like that, so it suits the the um, the film genre. That was the hardest thing for me. Well, it's funny because, like you just said, the idea in wrestling is to come as close as you can to the guy, and and you know, not actually hit him, but the closer the better. Whereas in Hollywood, they want you to play the angles and not come so close. And I I did a really cheesy sci-fi film years ago called. Uh, Android Apocalypse. Yeah, it won an Oscar in Lithuania, I think. <laughs> and the, they came to me after I did a fight scene, and they said, hey, man, you got to calm down. I go, what do you mean? He goes, like, the, the, the star. Have you ever heard of a guy called, I think his, I can't remember if it was Joey Lawrence, whatever. Some guy was like, you're coming too close to him. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not touching him. It's like, it doesn't matter. You're freaking the guy out. You know, these guys aren't used to having guys throw a huge punch and just kind of barely skin your face, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's just a, a different world, man. And like, I don't know, I suppose when we all started wrestling, when we were first throwing punches <laughs> in wrestling, we were either missing by a foot or, you know, giving someone a black eye. There was no middle ground. So, exactly. You know, to, to them, they probably don't understand that. No, we're, we're, we know what we're doing. You're going to get a little tap, but trust me, it's not going to be bad. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. On the line with my old NXT protege, Wade Barrett. And uh, listen, man, you told me one time that one of your worst matches ever was against Sheamus in Italy. Oh, Sheamus, yeah. Why was it so bad, dude? Okay, so we've kind of been working um, very low-level indie wrestling in the UK. If you look at indie wrestling in the UK now, it's really good. The standard is amazing. I've been working with a company called Define Wrestling lately as their general manager. I've actually just got back from a couple of shows out there. The standard is incredible. Um, so it's a different world now. So anyone who watches British indie wrestling at the moment, that's not how British indie wrestling was when Seamus and I were coming through in, <laughs> in you know, 2005 or whatever this was. It, the standard was incredibly poor. <laughs> um, so for the most part, aside from a few exceptions like Doug Williams, who was around and, and it was obviously very good. Um, and there was a couple of others floating about like, um, who else was it? James Mason and Robbie Brookside. 
if you were fortunate, you got to wrestle those guys and get a little bit better. But for the most part, 95% of the guys were just, you know, it was the blind leading the blind. And that would pretty much describe me and Seamus at that stage in our career. <laughs> uh, so we ended up in this match for, I forget what the company was called, but it was in this historic place. I'd ended up having to drive there from where I was living and I'd never driven through central London on a Saturday before. Turned out it was the worst idea ever. I should have got the train. It took me about eight hours of driving in, you know, two miles an hour traffic <laughs> till I got there. So I just made the start. I was also admittedly the most hungover I've ever been in my entire <laughs> career for this match. And I think it was televised in the UK, which maybe was the first time I was ever televised in the UK, which makes it all even worse. But it was, I can't blame Seamus. I'm sure he would completely blame me. But, <laughs> I mean, it was honestly, it was just a, a perfect storm of a disastrous match. I just remember it being bad. And I think there was about 20 people in the audience for this match and just zero reaction. And I remember very little of it apart from just feeling sick about about one minute into the match, just wanting to vomit and, you know, oh, let's go, let's finish. So, yeah, anyway, don't track that match down, whatever you do. You, you, won't, uh, you won't recover from it. It was a bad one. We had many more happier times after that in, in Brian Dixon's All-Star Wrestling. But that's, uh, that's another story for another day. Let me uh, see if you remember this one. <laughs> and the, boy, I was so freaking hot on this. It was a, a highlight reel that led to a match. And it was, uh, what's that guy's name? Brad Roberts or Brad McGillicuddy, whatever the hell his name was. Brad something or other was the, uh, was the general manager of Raw. Oh, Brad Maddox. Brad yeah, Maddox, yeah. that's it. And it was uh, me and you and Miz and Brad Maddox doing some kind of a promo. And we had to show a clip of your movie. I believe it was the first one. Was that the one with uh, Colin Farrell? Yeah, that, that would have been Dead Man Down. Dead Man that. Down. And this promo just ran off the rails. And uh, I remember it was just really bad. Um, and then it led to actually a pretty good match of a three-way between you, me, and Miz. But do you remember this promo on that night? I don't remember. I remember the match. I don't remember the promo at all. The, the, well, the promos were on the back. I do remember the match, and the match was excellent. Though. When I came to the back, um, I remember Vince was like, oh, that promo was terrible. And I was like, it was bad. It was just it was poorly written, and it was just it was shit. But I found out afterwards that Michael Cole on uh, instructions from Vince, called it the worst segment in Raw history. <laughs> oh, man, that's pushing it a little I far, know. <laughs> and the next night on SmackDown, I went out there, and I, I was wrestling the match, and it was one of those ones where I was just, no pun intended, stewing. And I was just looking at Cole, and I ran over, and I ripped the top of the thing off, and I slammed the desk. I was like, you f- asshole and he's like he's like what are you talking about it's you mother and i i, I kind of roughed him up a bit i lost my mind and uh, i go to the back and of course everyone's mad at me and then uh, you know and then of course vince knows why i go well, why would you say it was the worst segment in raw history he's like well it was pretty bad i said vince of all the shit you've had on this show <laughs> And of all the stuff I've done for the show, you're going to call that the worst segment in Raw history? Because, well, maybe I overreacted. You're damn right you overreacted. I was so mad. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that at all. Maybe maybe the, uh, I didn't, the bad stuff I generally kind of delete from my brain. Well, and I didn't tell anybody really either. Stuff. It wasn't one of my proudest. Hey, Vince just said we had the worst segment in Raw history, guys. <laughs> but I just remember, I was, I was, and afterwards I went to apologize to Cole. I'm like, I'm sorry, dude. And, you know, because they were going to they were going to find me and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, wow. I knew it wasn't his fault, but I couldn't help myself. I just lost it. I'm like the worst segment in raw history. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what, what's what's your plan now? Then, with vengeance is done, is is there more more stuff in the works so far? Yeah. So uh, I actually shot another film last year called Fanged Up. That's going to be coming out pretty soon too. But um, 
I haven't got a date, but I think maybe Fango. May or June. Is that a vet? It's a bit. It's a, a vampire comedy. Believe it or not, I play a Russian in the film, a Russian vampire slayer. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I got the role come through, and they were like, can you do a Russian accent? I said, no, I can't. And then they were like, well, you're going to have to figure it out because um, we need to film this in a few weeks, and you're the guy we really want. So my agent was like, just give it a go. And I gave it a little shot, sent something over, thinking I'd never hear from it again. And they like, perfect. And then like two weeks later, I was sat filming this, uh, this movie as the Russian vampire slayer. Can, so, can you give us a little example of the Russian vampire slayer? Oh, man. Okay, okay. It's, uh, I can't remember any of the lines from the film. It's been a little while since I filmed it, but let me, let me show you can do it. Okay, it's not a big problem for me to do the Russian accent. I have been studying the Rusev and Dilana lately. It's, it's very easy for me. I was going to say, you sound like a, a deeper, ver- deeper voice version of Lana. <laughs> exactly. That's why. That's what I basically ripped off. I ripped off Lana and I ripped off um, Vladimir Kozlov. Those are my two inspirations for the uh, for the role. And it ba- it basically all just boils down to Dolph Lund- Lundgren in uh, Rocky Four, right? <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, it's a comedy film. It's a um, a comedy horror. Right. Um, so I think I can get away with a few slippages in the action if, uh, if there are some holes in there. If it was a serious film, maybe not. But it's a comedy. All right, yeah, we get it. You mentioned something earlier, and I want to talk to you about it a bit, about the, the U.K. scene right now and how it's just so uh, over-the-top amazing. I had some of the guys on, uh, Trent Seven and uh, Tyler Bate and uh, Pete Dunn. Great guys. Uh, and one thing I love about English wrestlers, and you'll get this too, and when we say you guys look hard, you look tough. You look like you could kick people's asses. And a lot of guys in the business don't look that way nowadays. And I know it's something that Regal thinks is one of the problems, but there's just too many guys that don't look like they can, you know, fight their way out of a paper bag. But all you guys do. Uh, but the scene right now is so hot in England. Um, you must be kind of proud of that as, as, a, as a guy from, from, from Britain. Yeah, it's great to see. You know, I, I would love to claim some credit for it, but when I left, it was terrible. When I right. came back 10 years later, it was amazing. So I can't claim any credit <laughs> at all. It was kind of like, get rid of this guy, and then things are going to pick up. So, yeah, <laughs> I feel like in my absence, it got good. So, yeah, it's amazing. Though. And I agree with what you say. There is there is definitely, no matter how wrestling changes, and, and you know, I think the size of a guy has, has never been less important in wrestling right. than, it, than it is right now. And, you know, once upon a time, that would never have been a thing. And the style changes and guys do flips and stuff like that. I think there's always that place for a guy who looks like, you know what, I wouldn't want to get in the ring with that guy. He looks like he'd knock my head off. Yeah. But, you know, it's so true. I've been working with Defiant Wrestling, as you mentioned. There's a guy called Rampage over there, Rampage Brown. Um, and he just looks like he would rip your head off. And he's a great wrestler. He's been going a long time. And just guys like that for me are... No matter where the business goes, guys like that will always have a place, and they will always be in you know close to the main event. Yeah. They look like they can rip your head off. That's what people want to pay to see. It doesn't matter about anything else. First and foremost, for me, look like you can rip someone's head off, and it's it's so much of the battle. And uh, you know, a lot of the guys at Defiant Wrestling, the younger guys, they come up to me and ask me advice and stuff like that. And one of the first things I'll say to some of the guys there is, look, you need to get to the gym. You need to put some size on. You don't have to be Mr. Olympia. But looking at you, you, you know, you're, you're too skinny or you, you just look too weedy or whatever it is. You need to, to put some weight on. And so many of the guys coming through are, you know, 18, 19-year-old guys and stuff. And it's always going to limit where you can go if you don't look like you can fight your way out of a paper bag. So you're absolutely right on that one. What made you decide to come back to wrestling uh, in the GM capacity? Um, so I was, as you mentioned, when you left WWE the first time, um, I was kind of in a a position where I was not going anywhere near pro wrestling and I was kind of 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with this, at least for a while. I don't want to be around the business. And a bunch of offers and, and people were kind of calling me to, you know, parlay my name value from WWE into something else with, you know, TNA or whoever it is. And I was just kind of knocking them all back because I wanted a break. And um, Kenny McIntosh from Inside the Ropes, who I know you're working yeah. with quite a bit too, he got in touch with me and said, hey, I know you're not wrestling at the moment, but I run this company in the UK. They basically do speaking tours where you're up on stage and I'll ask you a bunch of questions and we'll get an audience in and just tell stories about your career and where you're going in life and this, that, and the other. So I thought about it and I thought, you know what, that sounds like it is a lot of fun. He'd done it with a few guys previously. I think he'd done one with Cody, so I reached out to Cody and um, good friends with Cody and, and, you know, got his advice. What do you think? And he was like, yeah, you have to do it. It's so much fun. Kenny's a great guy. It's real professional. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'll do it. And so we organized like a four-day run over in the UK and uh, and Ireland. And we did like Dublin, London, Manchester, and Glasgow. Um, so he booked it. He was sorting out all the flights and stuff. And he said, you know what? At the end of this, we have a couple of shows with a company called Defiant Wrestling. Literally the very next two days after you finished, uh, well, they were called What Culture Pro Wrestling at the time, they're now Defiant Wrestling. Um, he was like, I work pretty closely with them. They would love to get you in. They know you're not wrestling. If you want to do anything like a promo or anything, I said, you know what? I love doing commentary. I will come back and I will do commentary on their shows for two nights. And they had two kind of pay-per-view type shows. So I agreed to do that and I came along. And this was my first experience of British wrestling british indie wrestling since i'd left from the dark old days and i was kind of like oh how's this going to be but drew was there at the time as their champ cody was there and again i checked it with them like no it's a world of difference so i went along had a great time did the tour with kenny the speaking tour at the end i did the two shows and the commentary for defiant wrestling i loved it and suddenly i realized no this is a professional setup now the wrestlers are all really talented this is a world of difference from what i remember mm -hmm. um and then i did my two shows i went back to the uh, u.s where i live and, you know, and kind of forgot about it. And then a few months later, they, they contacted me again and said, hey, look, we know you're still not wrestling, but we have a spot we'd love you to fill in in a kind of GM capacity where you come out and make some matches and cut some promos, have some fun and direct the show and that kind of thing. And I, I had such a great time with them the first time around. I was so positive about that experience. I thought, you know what, I would love to get my all wet again in the wrestling world and mm -hmm. kind of get back around the business and as much as there are things that I don't miss at all, like the politics and some of the creative stuff I had to do, and certainly the travel, um, this was kind of the best of everything. So I get to go back. It's very little time commitment. I do like, you know, four or five days worth of, ev of shows every kind of two months. I do a little, little run, come back two months later, I'll go back and do more. Uh, so travel and stuff is, is really easy. And, um, you know, I get to be back around the locker room, back around the guys and see guys I haven't seen in years from the UK scene, like Rampage, who I knew back in the day before I'd even come over to, um, to the US and, you know, just be back around the business again and the kind of things that I've missed in that atmosphere and, you know, having a few drinks with the guys after yeah. the show, which it's so much fun to be back around it again. So the parts that I was missing that I didn't even realize I was missing, I kind of get my little fix from that. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of sticking my toe back in and, and slowly getting going with it again whilst leaving my door open to still be able to take up other opportunities with a lot of, you know, free time and stuff and, uh, and an open schedule, which I have. So, for example, I've had calls over the last kind of six months from Netflix called my agent, and they had me host a show out in L.A. for a couple of weeks. Um, Comedy Central, you mentioned earlier that you've worked for, they actually called my agent in New York about three weeks ago and had me shoot some stuff with them. Nice. So it's kind of tough to commit to anything like that when you're working such a packed schedule as WWE. So a lot of those guys will be able to do stuff. It's just 
when you have that insane schedule, you're never going to get time to do it, never get the freedom to do it. So it's nice at the moment to keep some windows open where if something comes up, great, I'm available. So it's it's kind of balancing stuff for me at the moment. What, what show did you do with Netflix? It was me and nice. probably probably about 16 other hosts from around the world. It's a global show, so they have hosts from like Brazil oh, and right the on. U.S. And, and stuff like that. And uh, they had me like hosting the British team who were competing there and you know commentating on performances and stuff, just me talking basically and using that voice for radio that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> and, uh, unfortunately, the face for radio also appears in the show. So the, the viewer, viewership might take a hit on that. But as soon as I can talk about that, I'll, I'll talk about it a bit more. And uh, what they're, they're a little little strange with their promotions where they like to keep dumb until they finally fire out their big promotional vehicle. Which is understandable. Well, when you're talking about the UK scene as we wind down here, there's, um, I mean, there's, it was fun, it was funny to me how the UK scene was thriving. There's a lot of talk about World of Sport returning. Then, of course, WWE starts their uh, British uh, division, signs a lot of the guys. Um, are there some guys out there that you're looking at defiant that you're thinking, oh, this guy has what it takes to go all the way? Oh, 100%, man. There's, I mean, the talent at defiant blows my mind. I'm not just saying this is a salesman for the company. Uh, one of the reasons I'm involved is because I've been so impressed with the kind of product they put up there. And I mentioned Rampage before. For me, he's he can be a main eventer anywhere. Um, there's another guy, Martin Kirby, who's kind of does a comedy kind of shtick. He's been working 15 years or something yeah. like that, but he's also a main event level wrestler too. Imagine like taking a Santino, but also give him the, the kind of skills where he can compete in regular main event level 25 minute matches with Austin Aries, which is what I saw him do uh, a couple of days ago, a really top level match. And um, he's, he's just a, a top level guy. There's a guy called Joe Hendry, who's a Scottish guy. He's a, a big heavyweight guy. He's actually competing in the Commonwealth Games for Scotland in, in amateur freestyle wrestling. So um, he's pretty good. He's got a great personality, too. Uh, Zach Gibson is a Scouse guy. He's a, a big, bulky Scouser from Liverpool who has the most irritating voice in the history of professional wrestling. And he has an amazing ability to get people to hate him, which as a heel in pro wrestling is worth its weight in gold. Um, and, you know, like, there's a bunch of other guys, Travis Banks. And I mean, there's literally, you can look at the roster and pick out probably 10 guys who would be WWE ready for, for anything like that. If it did come up for them. So, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a really talented roster over there. So will the, is there a point in time when, you know, the heel, uh, you know, you, you, you strip the heel of his title and he wallops you and you come back for the big return match. Have you thought about anything like that? Uh, I have. Part of the problem with me returning is that I'm going to get cheered. And you've never seen me work as a babyface, Chris, and believe me, it's horrific. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm going to figure out a way when I do come back that I'm not going to get cheered. So, well, once we figure that out, I think, and, uh, and I, I get ready to come back, I'm not coming back as a babyface. Absolutely not in any capacity. So, yeah, if, if I do come back or when I do come back, it's going to be a heel. I think I'm going to be a career heel. Do you do you talk to to Shamo and 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 Drew from time to time? Yeah, I'm in touch with a bunch of the guys up there, like Seamus and Drew. I speak to regularly. Um, Cesaro, Rusev, uh, just Cody. I mean, I tell them, I mean, Cody's not up there anymore. Yeah, 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 some of the guys who are still up there, I speak to regularly. So uh, you know, it's good to kind of keep up with them, see what's going on, get the inside scoop on what's what's going on up there and stuff like that. And uh, you know, it's like. It's kind of hard because I know the schedules they're on. And I remember when I was on crazy schedules and my friends in the UK would want to see me. We haven't seen you for three years. Yeah. You're back in town. Come on, let's go for a beer. It's like, no, I've got to get on a flight at 6 a.m. to go to Brussels or whatever. And so, like, you know, I get it. It's tough. And even when they're in town in 
you know, the Brooklyn Center or whatever like that. It's, there's just no time to really hang out and stuff like that. So we stay in touch. It's so easy these days with smartphones and social media. And even if I'm not speaking to them, I see exactly what they're doing on their Twitter or their Instagram or whatever it is. So I feel like I'm still completely connected to it. He must have been pretty happy for Drew with his journey when he got, you know, he got fired and he was so down about it, but his mission was to come back and suddenly he comes back and becomes the NXT champion. Yeah, he's absolutely smashed it. I mean, it wasn't a surprise to me at all. I've known Drew since I think 2005 was when I first started hanging out and he was always massively talented. And um, I think sometimes you see a guy get released when they do those mass releases and you're like, yeah, I get it. I mean, he wasn't doing anything or, you know, I think he reached his limit or, you know, uh, uh, there are better guys coming up from developmental. Drew was one of those ones where literally everybody in the locker room were like just shaking their heads and blown away that they could have done that to a guy with his his credentials, his ability, his size, his look, his attitude. And um, I think the one thing that he was lacking back in the day was his promo work, which wasn't terrible. It just wasn't at the level that it should have been at or could have been at. And uh, I know one of the big things he did when he, he hit the indie scene was to work on his promos and he, he demanded every single time he was out there that he gets promo time, which is what he needed. And you listen to his promos now, and he's like one of the best out there. He's really good at it. His, his voice and his accent, he's managed to neutralize so people don't actually understand him these days. And yeah, he's going to smash it. I know he, he got an arm injury, I think, a few months back. Yeah. He's probably close to getting healed up on that. And I'm sure that post-Mania, I hope they put him from NXT back on the main roster because I don't see where else he needs to go in, in NXT at this point. So, fingers crossed he gets the debut and, and do it big and uh, go on and um, and become Britain's first world champion. There still hasn't been one. Really? I uh, I was fighting and clawing for it, and I think Neville was fighting and clawing for it, but we're, we're still waiting. I don't know if a, Scot- a Scotchman counts as a uh, as Britain's <laughs> world champion. Technically, yeah, he's Brit- British, but I think you still need an Englishman. Does, does an Irish does an Irish does an Irishman Irish count? One, yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple of. I mean, Finn Balor too. There's two. That's right. About it, but we're, we've still haven't got a uh, a Northern Ireland, a Scotland, Wales, or or Englishman. So someone's going to get it eventually. I think um, I, I can see it being Drew, to be honest with you. And there's no finer man for the job, apart from the fact that he's a, a skirt wearing uh, skirt wearing <laughs> Scott. Yeah, there we go. So uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, good luck to him. I'm sure he's going to do great. I was going to say, uh, he was kind of at the same position where you were at or I was at when we left on our own, and he had to kind of be pushed out the door because he wasn't really doing much either. But like you said, that, that time away can give you some new perspective and give you some new fire and some new hunger. So um, I'm glad that he did that. Uh, a couple last questions I wanted to just touch on. I meant to mention this earlier. Another kind of thing that I thought you did a great job with was Bad News Barrett. And I just kind of wanted to hear about your overall impressions of that character and if you think it could have gone farther and kind of why did it stop? Yeah, I mean, I loved Bad News Bar. I'd say in my history of professional wrestling, the two most fun periods of my career. Um, And I think most people expect me to say Nexus, but Nexus is definitely up there in terms of achievements. But I don't know if it was so much fun because there was a lot of pressure and a whole new thing. And, you know, it felt like my feet didn't touch the floor. But in terms of fun, the most fun I ever had was... I did about six months' worth of color commentary in FCW, which I loved. I was working under Dusty Rhodes, and he'd be in my earpiece, and I was working with Byron Saxton, who was the play-by-play guy, and my instruction was to simply go out there, help get talent get over, and just have fun, and that's all I did. And um, Dusty Rhodes was always very complimentary on what I was doing, so that period of my career was just constant fun. Um, And then Bad News Barrett. I think Bad News Barrett was just... 
just having a laugh every single yeah. night and going out there. My aim when I went out wasn't to entertain the crowd who were in attendance. My aim was to entertain my, entertain my friends watching back home, the guys I used to go to the pub <laughs> with in England right. and, and Wales and stuff, because I knew if I made them laugh, that level of humor would cross over to everyone else. So um, I would go out there and, and just put on this ridiculous routine where – I would come up with the, you know, whatever catchphrase and stuff got over. And uh, my aim, like I say, was to make my mates back home laugh. And I knew it was working when, you know, I'd, I'd be walking around the corridor and the, the locker rooms and stuff. And I would just within two or three weeks of me debuting that character, I'd hear people hitting the catchphrase. And then I'd walk past Triple H and he'd say the catchphrase. And then Stephanie would say it. And then Vince would be saying, it. I was like, okay, this is working clearly at this point. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And again, that's another one of those... Uh, moments that kind of led me towards the decision to move on because I felt there was a ton of momentum there um, that I had going and it wasn't my decision to stop that character. It was somebody else's decision. And um, first of all, I was I was bad news Barrett saying the catchphrase and then I wasn't allowed to say the catchphrase anymore. Which was the catchphrase? Still, You've got some bad news? I'm afraid I got some bad news. Yeah, right. the, the catchphrase there. So yeah. it was, I was still... Bad News Barrett coming out in a Bad News Barrett t-shirt, but I wasn't allowed to say the catchphrase anymore. So I'm like, okay, it doesn't really work if I'm not if I'm not allowed to say the catchphrase because people are cheering it and you want me to heal, then I'm not really Bad News Barrett. I'm just a guy in the t-shirt that says Bad News Barrett. I'm not giving out a bad news. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, we're, we're working on it. And then the next thing you know, I was King of the Ring, which initially was like, okay, we're going to drop Bad News Barrett, which was over for this, but this could be a great vehicle now um, to kind of push me towards that main event if it's used right. But within two weeks, I was, you know, losing to, I think, Sinkara I lost to within two weeks of winning the King of the Ring. And then I was losing to R-Truth. And I was like, this isn't mm-hmm. the direction that this should be used. And I should be calling. No, no disrespect to those two guys, both very talented guys. But I get it. At, the, at that moment in time, neither one of them was high enough up the card for, for me to be kind of, you know, yeah. to assist me in climbing up in any way. And certainly not when I'm losing to them. And um, it was, for me, that was... Well, we trashed something that was over, given me something that is not going to get over. And, you know, even down to Vince insisting that I had to wear the cape and the crown every night, which for me, it might have worked in the 80s. It didn't work in, in this era. And I was slowly trying to walk out and forget the crown. And I'd be hauled out to Gorilla afterwards. Vince says you have to wear the crown every night and stuff like that. So I was, you know, that was another thing that, like, it was just disappointment. It felt like. I got myself to a position where we could springboard forward, and again, it was no, we're going to go in a different direction. So I, I, I guess I got to the point where I felt in my head anyway at that time that it doesn't matter what I come up with or what I do, I'm, I'm destined to be put back down in this position that I'm not enjoying or not wanting to be in. So yeah, disappointment for sure, and it, it just added weight to the idea that I need to move on and do something else. Well, and that's what you've done, man. And like I said, vengeance is uh, is a big step for you, and. Uh... I'm excited to see where where it takes you, man. You're you're living the life of a New York socialite now. <laughs> I won't go that far. I'm, I'm sometimes I'm sitting in my apartment drinking cans of Boddingtons and uh, <laughs> and not socializing at all. So, <laughs> hey man, that's kind of the perfect night out for me sitting at, sitting in my home bar with a can of Boddington. Do me a favor. The last thing you got to tell me that story when uh, when you and I were um, <laughs> when you were my protege on NXT and. What did, what did I what did I say? I asked you to tell me what my, my name was or something like oh, that. Oh man, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, his his Stu, the big wrestling fanboy. Okay, I grown up my whole life wanting to be a WWE wrestler and this that and the other. Grew, grew up watching Chris Jericho. I know you probably hate hearing that, but yeah, I grew up watching Chris Jericho and a bunch of others. 
And, like, here I am, finally, after years of struggling in the UK scene and being paid nothing and being beat up and going through developmental and being paid, you know, very low amounts of money and living in cockroach-infested apartments. And I have this car, the only car I can afford in Tampa Bay, Florida, which is 100 degrees every day, has got no AC because it's the only car I can actually afford. And so I paid my dues, all right? And I was like, oh, wow, finally, I'm here on this NXT show. And, oh, my God, my pro is Chris Jericho. And he's... (laughs) the world champion right now and i'm i'm like super excited even though i'm playing this hard-nosed badass heel miserable guy inside like that night in the exterior inside it's a you know a 10 year old boy on his birthday party (laughs) so we're walking down to the ring and uh, the match is this is my debut on wwe and we're walking down to the ring and the match is going to be chris jericho the world champion taking on this newcomer this nxt rookie um daniel bryan so he comes down, and um, then we follow. We walk down to the ring. The uh, pyro goes up. Wow, I'm walking down to the ring. Chris Jericho, we've got pyro going off. There's a packed arena who's going nuts to see this. And I just stand next to you. And the only thing I was told walking out was that, okay, it's going to be a match. This guy against this guy, and um, whatever the finish was. And Stu just stand at the side and, and watch the match. And that's all I had to do. Right. So I was, like, I was nervous and excited and thrilled. So I get down to the ring and suddenly we're stood in the ring. Everyone's booing because you were massively heel at that point. You were like the most hated guy on the show. And it was awesome. Like it was me standing there experiencing this with you. I was just like, oh, this is cool. I've got the best seat in the house for this. This is so cool. And then suddenly I see you grab the mic from the, the announcer. And I was like, what's he doing? I don't remember saying he was going to do a promo. I was like, oh, whatever. And then you started talking. And while you're talking, I'm still kind of, blown away by this crowd and just looking out there and all these faces staring back to me. I've never been in this position. I was like, wow, I've actually made it. I have debuted in WWE. No matter what happens now, I've been a WWE superstar or whatever you want to call it. And then so you're talking and I can hardly hear because the way the the sound system is set up in the arena. If you're in the ring, it's actually pretty hard to hear unless you're paying attention. I certainly wasn't paying attention. And I suddenly look at you because you've gone quiet and you're holding the mic out of me. And I have no <laughs> idea what I'm supposed to do at this point. And so I just took the mic. Um, I thought, oh my God, we're li- literally live on air right now. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no promo plan. So I just start talking about how great I am. And I'm, the, I'm way better. I'm the top bare-knuckle fighter in all the world. And I'm going to conquer this. And I'm going to do that. And if anybody in this, blah, blah, blah. And then you suddenly just stop me and look at me and said, I just asked you to introduce me. <laughs> like the whole crowd starts laughing at that point. I was like, as you wish. And then I just did the introduction. And I was like, oh my God. I remember as soon as I gave you the, the mic back to the, uh, the ring announcer, they played Daniel Bryan's music. I slid out. I'm now on the floor of the, the, the arena by the ring. So, oh no, Chris Jericho hates me. Oh my God, I just screwed the whole thing up. Vince is going to hate me. On. And I'm, I'm no selling this, obviously, visually, but there's a million things going through my head. Uh, and then I'll tell you another one. You don't even know that. I don't even think we talked about this one. So, your pyro used to be, when we came out on the stage, you had the pyro over the top. There was just a big flash explosion. Yeah. Uh, and then we'd walk down to the ring together. It wasn't like shooting up, you know, you know, rockets or anything like that. You'd have one big flash above us. It was like a line of flash above the Titantron. So I think the second week we went out, we walked to the top of the stage. Your pyro went off, bang. And I used to wear that jacket that was yeah. um, on my shoulders, and I'd throw it off and walk down to the ramp next to you, uh, and we get in the ring. Anyway, we got into the ring, this was, I think, week two, and you just, fu- you're furiously rubbing one of your eyes. Like, What's the matter? He's just rubbing your eye, and he's like, get me water, get me water. 
So you got some water, like, bottle up. This is while the other guy's doing his entrance, whoever it was. And you're, like, washing your eye out and stuff like that. And then I slide out on the floor. I'm like, oh, my God. And in my head, what must have happened was that I flicked my jacket off. <laughs> and, like, the, the corner of my jacket caught you in the eyes. And his world champion, Chris Jericho, blinded for this match. And I was like, oh, my God, we get to the back. He's going he's gonna to cuss me out. I'm in trouble here. I must have whacked him in the eye and this, that, and the other. And we get to the back, and I'm kind of, like, waiting for my, my bollocking. I'm like, oh, what, what happened to the eye, Chris? And you're like, oh, the, the pyro, when it went off, a bit of ash must have fallen down and went in my eyes. So the big flashbang above us, it was like it went in your eyes. So I was like, oh, oh, was that it? Okay, cool. Yeah, you thought you were in trouble for everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, it's like, that's what it's like, though, when you first debut up there as an unknown kid. He's like... You're just nervous about everything. You don't screw anything up, and especially not with the world champion next to you. Well, especially like, the way that show was. They didn't tell you guys anything, and the whole thing at first <laughs> was just to be supposed to be one big rib on you guys. So, yeah. <laughs> But you came out of it all right, man. You did real there good for go. yourself, and uh, I'm happy for you, man. So I'm excited to see where your uh, where your career takes you over the next few years. Thank you very much. much about, thanks for having me on the show, too. I'm a regular listener, so it's good to be back. Uh, on thanks, man. Well, I, appearance on here. I know, man. I appreciate you reaching out, and uh, and I look forward to seeing you again soon, bro. Awesome. Thank you very much, mate. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right, thanks to Stu Bennett, a.k.a. Wade Barrett, on the big screen and the small screen success that he had this fall. You can check him out, I Am Vengeance, released in theaters probably in September. About the same time his Netflix show, Ultimate Beastmaster, comes out, follow Stu on Twitter. He's at Stu Bennett. He'll let you know exact dates as soon as he has them. And follow Jericho underscore Cruz on Twitter if you want to be the first to know who's been added, uh, continuing to this killer lineup of the first ever Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Rager at sea. Sammy Callahan talking trash. Impact Wrestling wanting to uh, be on board now. Maybe I'll bring them aboard. Should I bring Impact Wrestling on board along with Ring of Honor? Remember, everything on the cruise is all-inclusive when you book your cabin at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Ship set sail October 27th, and your cabin price includes everything you're hanging out with everybody from Rey Mysterio to Ricky the Dragon Seaboat, Jim Ross, McFoley, Jerry Lawler, live podcast, Keeping It 100, Killing the Town, Beyond the Darkness, some great rock and roll with Fozzie, Corey Taylor, Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons, King, some great stand-up comedy, Brad Williams, Craig Gass, Ron Funches, Sal and Q from the Impractical Jokers, Hall of Famer, WWE Hall of Famer, Pat Patterson hosting karaoke night. Uh, so much to see and do. And of course, the Piesta de Resistance, the Ring of Honor, presenting the Sea of Honor tournament aboard the ship. Matches happening in the middle of the ocean. And the winner of the Sea of Honor tournament gets a Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship shot in the future. Kenny Omega will be there. Young Bucks, Marty Skrull, Cody, Briscoe Brothers, uh, Flip Gordon, Matt Taven, Melissa Santos, Brandy Rhodes, Mandy Leon, Kenny King, Silas Young, the Dogs, man. Uh, Brian Cage is going to be there. And like I said, Ron that impact is going to be there as well maybe doing their own little takeover on a pirate ship i don't know all i know is you got to go to chrisjerichocruise.com book your cabin now and be a part of history as we do the first ever rock and wrestling rager at sea all right also first ever how about an acdc interview that's right acdc does zero press just like Guns N' Roses did Zero Press, but just like we got Duff McKagan on Talk is Jericho. This Friday, we got ACDC drummer Chris Slade returning to talk about rejoining the band and working with Axl Rose. Will there be more in the future with ACDC, Angus, and Axl? You're going to find out right here on Talk is Jericho this Friday. Until then, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy, the wind of change.